welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for the latest sermons and audio updates from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. at 12.11 First Avenue North on the third floor. Flash. For some of you, for some of you, yeah, for some of you, it's a superhero, right? It, right? That He's pretty popular, he's very fast. Um, for others of you, you didn't want to say it out loud because it seemed, you're like, oh, camera. Right? I, I think of a camera. Other people, maybe you're from, you grew up in Tampa, you know that, that Tampa Bay is the, the lightning strike capital of the world. You think of the flash of lightning. But some of you uh, in this room probably thought of something else that goes by the term flash. Uh, flash is the stuff when you walk into a tattoo shop that is up on the walls. That's sort of the, the artist showing, here's all the stuff I can do. Here's my... Here's my best stuff. That stuff on the wall of a tattoo shop is called flash. Now, when you go in there, there's usually script, right? The tattoo artist wants to show you, I can do letters very well, right? I can do pretty words. And do you know what the most common set of words that are on the flash of a tattoo parlor are? It's not somebody's mom. Well, there are definitely some mom and hearts. Oh, yeah, right? There's definitely mom, but it's Father's Day. You should have said dad, right? Be day appropriate. No, the most common set of words on flash on most tattoo shops' walls are these words. Only, uh, I bet some of you know where I'm going with this, only God can judge me. The most common set of, of flash words that you'll see in nearly every tattoo shop are the words, only God can judge me. And this is a a fairly common tattoo as well. Several uh, famous people have the tattoo, only God can judge me. Several people who aren't famous have the tattoo as well. But this has sort of become a part of our culture. This idea that only God can judge me. That I am sort of immune to what the rest of you have to say, and only God can judge me. The trouble is, is that we don't even actually believe that part. Right? If we're, if we're being really honest, we don't even like the idea that God can judge us. We like the idea of no judgment. Right? No judgment for you. We're, we're like the soup Nazi from Seinfeld in, in days past. We get uncomfortable with the idea of any judgment, of any critique of our morality and our behavior. Anything that approaches that, we naturally and instinctively push that away. We have this idea that that anything we can do to avoid that sort of judgment, whether it's from another person, or whether it's from a religion, some sort of God, anything else. We don't like the idea of judgment at all. It's interesting. Um, there's a conservative radio host named Dennis Prager. He's almost also famous for his um, internet videos that he does. And one of the things he said one time was, in our culture, it is seen as more evil to critique evil than to do evil. Let me say that again. And I think it's a little bit over the line, but I think it gets to a point. He says, in our culture, it seems that it is more evil to critique evil than to do evil. We are so averse to judgment and calling things evil 
that that has now become one of our culture's great pariahs, one of our culture's unforgivable sins. And this is something that we, we sort of see in culture, but if we look, we see in ourselves as well. That we will do whatever it takes to insulate ourselves from critique. Because we feel that we have a fundamental right to live without interference from others. Right? When somebody critiques you for something, especially somebody who you're not very familiar with, what is our cultural go-to? You don't know me. You don't know me, so you don't get to say anything about me. Who are you to talk to me like that? And so what happens is, more and more and more, we live in this world where we think that there is no judgment at all. That judgment is sort of gone the way of the buffalo. It's interesting because this even works into the thoughts of those of us who are Christians. If I were to ask you, What's the difference between the way that God acts in the Old Testament and God acts in the New Testament? What would you say? Don't say it out loud. You see, even in our minds as Christians, we've bought into this and we think, well, in the Old Testament, God was kind of mean. But in the New Testament, we get Jesus. And Jesus is loving. And so in the Old Testament, he was kind of, he was throwing frogs at Egyptians and seemed like he was smiting somebody every other chapter. And in the New Testament, we get Jesus, and Jesus is just happy. He's just loving. And what we do is we create this false dichotomy. We create this false idea because again and again and again, what is the most common metaphor for God? In the Old Testament, it's that God is a faithful and forgiving husband who keeps taking the people of Israel back despite the fact that they keep going, nah, I'm out. Again and again and again. The picture we see most of God in the Old Testament is not that of judge, but is that of loving, faithful husband. And when we get to the New Testament, it's not like Jesus never said anything about judging. In fact, if we read Jesus at times... Jesus was very, very direct. But this idea that the Old Testament God is bad and the New Testament God is good and loving is something that Christians have fought against since the very beginning. One of the first heresies, that means really, really bad Bible idea. One of the first heresies was this guy named Marcion. And Marcion took and he cut out the entire Old Testament out of his Bible... And then he also cut out any parts of the New Testament that he didn't like that made God seem harsh. And he just wanted a nice, loving Jesus who was happy and never said anything bad and never critiqued Marcion. But if we read the words of Jesus, what we see is that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are the very same God. They are one and the same. And any time we try to pit God's love and God's critique or God's judgment against one another, we get into a bad spot. So here's what I want to do. I want to read something that Jesus taught near the end of his life. The, the week of his crucifixion, he had something to say about this text that we believe, and the last part of the second paragraph of the Apostles' Creed says, we believe that Jesus will come again 
to judge the living and the dead. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 25. And we're going to stand together, and I'm going to read verses 25 down to the end of the chapter. You can read along. If you have a copy of your Bible, you can read in there. It's also on our app. It'll also be on the screen. So if you would stand with me as we read God's Word. Jesus said this, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne before Him, will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one for another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. City Church, this is the word of God, spoken by Jesus nearly 2,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. Is is that the Jesus that you are used to thinking of in your mind? Not exactly, right? That is not exactly the Jesus that we often picture. And yet it is the description of what Jesus gives of himself. And when we read this at Flourish first blush, and when we sort of instinctively flinch, what this reveals about our heart, what this passage and our reaction to it reveals about us, is that we are indifferent to the idea of judgment. When it comes to the idea of judgment, especially God's judgment on us, we shy away from it. We sort of, we sort of Push it away. Why? Why is it that we have a low-key problem with the idea of judgment? I I sort of jotted down some things, and I think that are are true for some of us. For some of us, um, we are indifferent towards the idea of judgment because we don't believe it's real. Some of you are here this morning, and you're not Christians. We always want City Church to be a place where you can come and hear the teaching of Jesus and begin to understand what He says. 
Uh, and some of you are just checking this out, and you go, yeah, I don't believe in God. I don't believe, since there is no God, that there is any sort of judgment. Or maybe the only judgment you believe in is sort of a, a, a basic karma mechanic for the universe. Others of us, others of you this morning, are indifferent to judgment because you say, well, there are no fixed moral points. Nothing is always wrong. Sometimes everything is acceptable, and so because of that, judgment sort of gets thrown out the window. There, there are some of you who are indifferent to judgment this morning because of that. Others, it's a little bit different. For, for some of us, and this is, this is the one that is most true of my heart, um, I grew up in a, a Christian culture that was very focused on judgment, that used judgment as sort of a stick to keep people in line. And so as I grew older, and I sort of started to see the way that judgment was used harshly and and was almost weaponized in the church, I sort of of said, oh no, I'm I'm not going to do that. I'm going to keep Jesus, but I'm going to say, no judgment. And I'm going to stay far away. And so we become indifferent to judgment because of experiences we've had in the past. We sort of throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, I was thinking about... Uh, how we do this, how we often go, oh, well, judgment is used by people for to, to hurt. It's used by people uh, to oppress, so we need to get rid of it. Uh, and that's just, that's just bad logic. That's just a bad idea. I was thinking about the idea of Dilaudid. Right? Dilaudid is a medication. It's a very heavy painkiller. It's also commonly used as a street drug. Right? And so um, if we were to have someone in our church who were to talk to people and, and confiscate Dilaudid because of their job, they would say that it's a very bad thing, right? And yet, as someone whose wife, I've seen my wife in the hospital, and my wife is allergic to morphine. I am very thankful for Dilaudid. But should we throw out Dilaudid because people abuse it? No. No. It still has its purpose within the right context, within the right place. So as much as those of us who grew up in, in churches that weaponized judgment against us and against others, we cannot completely throw it out altogether. For some of us, though, the reason that we, that we sort of shy away from the idea of judgment, the reason why we're indifferent to it, uh, is because we have a, a deep, and real understanding of our sin. We have uh, seen the darkness that is inside of us. We have seen what has come out of us at times. And we look at that and go, if judgment is real, that's not good. If judgment is real, last Thursday was was a bad decision. And because of our sort of decision-making process, we instinctively know this is not good. These things that I do are not good. So I don't want to think about judgment, because if I think about judgment, it just gets messy. And into all of this comes the creed saying that we believe that Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead, to judge all nations and people throughout history. And we have Jesus saying exactly the same thing. And so as we look at this story, 
which works out pretty simply. It's a pretty easy story to understand, right? God says that there is coming a day in the future where he'll gather every human who's ever lived, and he'll divide them between sheep and goats, right? And, and if you were a, a music fan in the late 90s, you know that there was a band called Cake who wrote a song about this, right? Sheep go to heaven, goats go to hell. And it's very singable, and it's, it's catchy like most Cake songs are. And yet, it's because this story is so binary. In this story, we see that Jesus is the judge, and that it is a binary judgment. What do I mean by that? Binary is simply on-off. A light switch is binary. That light switch is either on, or it's off. But how do we think about so many things in our lives, right? So many things in our lives are on a scale, right? So many things are on a fader, right? So some of you may have fancy lights, right? You've got those fancy lights that you can kind of ease up, you know, oh, this is, this is the dinner mood. And this, is, this is watching a movie, right? This is kids get out of bed, we've got to go right now. Right? You, you, you have those things, right? What's interesting in this picture of the judgment of God is that it's not, it's not a sliding scale, it's not a fader, it's a binary. It's on or off. And when we read this, it's not only binary, and not only is Jesus the judge in this story, but one of the most interesting things, did you catch it? Is how surprising this judgment is to people. The people that end up on the right side, both physically and metaphorically. The people that end up there, Jesus says, thank you. Thank you for all that you've done for me. And all the people kind of look up at Jesus and go, um, I don't remember that. And Jesus says, no, no. Anytime that you showed compassion or kindness on any of these other brothers, you were doing that as if it was to me. And then on a sudden, on the other side, when Jesus says, you never helped me out. You never did anything. All of the people say, what? what? Me? No, not me. I, I never met you, Jesus. I, if I would have met you, I would have been kinder. Why is this so surprising? Why are both sides of this so surprising? It's because of the way that we tend to think about judgment. We tend to think about judgment as something that is purely external. The things that I can see with my eyes. And God's judgment is far deeper. One of the things that Jesus is showing, he's talking, and he sort of has the background of the Pharisees in this passage. And one of the things he's showing when he, when he, when he calls them functionally goats, is that oftentimes we think that we don't deserve judgment because of our own self-righteousness. We think that we don't deserve judgment because we are doing quite nice. Thank you very much. Think about this. All of us have um, an idol or a sin that, that is our go-to. That's something that so easily tangles us up, that so easily weighs us down. When things are going well in your life, and you're not going to that idol for your identity and security, when, you're, when things are going well, how do you feel? Huh. If Judgment Day was today, I think we'd be all right here. 
It's been several days since I've done anything wrong. And so if Jesus were to come back, I would welcome him as a friend. You laugh, but how many times do our hearts go in that direction? How many times do we go five minutes without sinning, and all of a sudden we want to pin? Right? We, Jesus. Right? It reminds me of one of my favorite quotes from Martin Luther. Um, it's probably not the best quote, but Martin Luther said, um, uh, Beer makes us sleepy, and you can't sin in your sleep, so let us drink beer. Martin Luther said that, right? So we wake up and we're like, I have not sinned in six and a half hours. We get self-righteous. And it's interesting that the people that were most surprised about the judgment of God were the self-righteous. Were the ones who thought that they had it together. But as we read this story of Jesus really judging us, one of the things we see is that we can't really escape it. We cannot escape God's judgment. But when, as we've talked about judgment so far, we haven't hit on a fundamental question. Why? Why does God say that He is going to judge? Why does God do And the reason why God judges is twofold. First, because of His holiness. Because He is absolutely holy and cannot be in the presence of imperfection or sin. And the second reason that God judges is that He is committed with a fiery passion to re-perfecting this world and his people. You see, judgment isn't just so God can go, ha ha, good people, bad people, let's go. It's not just because God is arbitrary and he's playing a game of cosmic duck duck goose with eternal consequences. No, God is doing something else. What God is doing is taking us back and making the world back into what it was intended to be from the very beginning. He's bringing us back to Eden, both in our persons and in the world around us. The reason why God judges is to refine and purify His people and this world. It's, it's sort of like a sculptor. I, I was thinking this week of like sculpture. Like, and I don't mean like sort of modern sculpture, like the metal stuff. I really like that. But I'm thinking of like classic Michelangelo sculpture. I saw some friends, I had some friends, and they were on vacation in in Italy or wherever Michelangelo's David is. I was just looking at it. I was looking at, like, how massive this stone is. And I thought about the idea of, like, how long it would take to, like, chisel and chip away at something like this. Because it's enormous, and it's It's so lifelike. Like, all the muscles look like real muscles, right? Everything looks just right. And it reminded me of a a quote that a sculptor had one time, 
the sculptor, somebody asked him, how do you, how do, you do these massive, incredible stone sculptures? And, and his answer was interesting. He says, oh, all I'm doing is chipping away the parts of the stone that aren't beautiful. And you think about that in terms of these giant sculptures. Oh, all I'm doing is taking all the parts of this stone that aren't beautiful and chipping them away. We hear that and we go, ooh, that, that sounds beautiful. But functionally, what is the sculptor doing? He is judging that stone. This piece of the stone is not beautiful. That part of the stone has to go. And what he's doing is he's judging it. This is an incredibly accurate picture of what God is doing with us and this world through judgment. Because as we look at this, as much as we are indifferent towards judgment, the truth of the matter is the only way that you and I will ever change is through submitting to judgment. Now, if your life is fine and everything is perfect and you wouldn't change anything in your life and everything is going swimmingly, then this next part of the sermon isn't for you. But if you are like me, and you know that there are some things in your heart and in your life that are not perfect, the hard fact of the matter is that submitting to God's critique, to God's judgment of us, is actually the only way that we're going to change. You see, the Bible to us is like a mirror. And James uses the metaphor of somebody going up to a mirror, looking into the mirror, and seeing things wrong, and going, eh, alright, and going on about their day. For those of you who have seen my son when we don't make him comb his hair, you know that Connor gets this large, rakish um, cowlick of hair um, on top of his head. Right, uh, and he inherited that from me. Um, I have several cowlicks now. In the '90s, when the hairstyle was to be very messy, um, this was fine for me. But as times have changed and the clean-cut look from the '50s has returned, I take more time to do my hair than my wife. <laughs> Not proud of that. Um, why? Because I have to look in the mirror and go, oh, how are those cowlicks doing? I mean, I, I literally have to use Afrosheen to keep my hair in line. Because the cowlicks want to go crazy. But what if I were to wake up in the morning and my hair is a hot mess? And I look at the mirror. Alright. Let's go. And go on about my day. Right? Has the mirror been of any value to me? None whatsoever. I may have well just moved on with my life. Judgment, and more specifically, the Bible, is the mirror into our lives. That we look at and go, oh, that's, hmm, no, that's got, hmm, needs it. So the Bible is a mirror that shows us what's wrong, 
But even more than that, the Bible is like uh, one of those fancy scales that measures your body mass index. So, one of the things that we have learned over the past few years is that weight is just a number. Please, remind me again that weight is just a number. I need you to tell me this. But we know this because we see, we see these NFL athletes who weigh 275 pounds, and we think, that's a lot of pounds. And then we see them, and they're chiseled out of solid rock. Right? And then we see somebody else who weighs the same thing, who is not chiseled out of solid rock. The difference between those two people is not just the number on the scale. The number on the scale is the same. The difference is inside of their body. And what body mass index does, as I understand it, is that it uses electricity and electrocutes yourself just a little bit. Just another reason to be weary of fitness. They're suggesting mild electrocution. But this, this electrical charge runs through you, and the amount of resistance that your body provides to the electricity spits out a number, science, 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 body mass index. But what's significant about this, and why, why I'm going here, is this. The body mass index doesn't just tell you what's going on on the outside of your body, what you look like and what the number on the scale is. It tells you what's going on inside of your body. And this is what is so true about the Bible. The Bible is absolutely more concerned about what's going on inside of your heart. Because some of us can perform really well. We can play the Christian game. We can do all the right things. We can treat everybody kindly. We can fill in the blank with your particular virtue that you're passionate about. We can do that. But on the inside, we have significant problems. On the inside, we are prideful and self-righteous. We are hoping everybody around us gets zapped. We are hoping that everyone else gets judged. We are prideful in our hearts. It, it reminds me in a lot of ways of my friend Alex that I got to see this past week in Myrtle Beach. Alex drinks a six-pack of Coke every day. Every day. And regularly raids the fryer basket at Logan, Logan's, where he works during the summertime, for whatever junk's left in the fryer basket while he's cooking. And we'll just, let's just eat that. He eats half a box of cereal for breakfast. Like, and I don't mean like Special K or some sort of like respectable adult cereal. I mean like the, the brighter the box, the more Alex is going to like it. And Alex is skinny as a rail. But he is not healthy. But you look at him, and I look at what he eats, and I'm like, come on, man. I did the whole 30 for, like, legit 30 days. I lost, like, nothing. You're over here pounding Cokes. Nothing. The, the difference is, you can't see Alex's unhealthiness. 
on the outside of his body. In so many ways, the Bible measures us and reminds us that what's really wrong with us is inside of our heart. What's really wrong is the things that go on inside of us, the things like pride and envy, things like lust and laziness, the things that are sunk down deep into our heart that you can't see on the outside. And the Bible comes to us and it says we will not just be judged for those things on our outsides, but those on our insides as well. And it says, do you want to change? The way to change is by being willing to look in that mirror. To be willing to have that internal examination of your heart that can only come when you submit yourself to the critique and judgment of God. It's only then that we can be honest about what our true desires actually are and begin to repent of those things, begin to turn away from those things. Not just our actions, but those things that drive our actions from inside of us. So as we read this story, we see that Jesus says that the people that he sorts to his right are the people that helped him when he was hungry and thirsty, when he was a stranger, when he was sick, when he was a prisoner. And it's really interesting to me that as we read through that list of things, that they are a very picture of what Jesus was doing on the cross for you and for me. One of the seven things Jesus said on the cross was that I am thirsty. As he hung there on the cross, naked, estranged, a stranger from God, sick and dying of the wounds, and a captive of the Roman army. You see, when he says all those things, when he talks about this judgment, he is even still pointing you and I to some good news. That the judge of all mankind was judged in the place of his people. That despite the fact that you and I will casually look at the mirror of the Bible, will shun any sort of critique from God, will walk away from any idea of opening our heart in any real manner, despite the fact that that is true of us, more often than we want to admit, Jesus was judged on our behalf. He took that on himself. So all the ways that we should have been judged, he was judged for us. So then when it comes to the ultimate day of judgment, we don't get to stand up and say, here's how good I was, Jesus. We stand up and throw ourselves on his mercy and say, the only way I can make it through this life is if you have taken and paid this all in my stead. Because that's what the cross was. The cross was, as we have talked about in the past few weeks, the cross was the judgment of God that you and I deserve poured out onto Jesus. But what's interesting is, when we 
open ourselves up, when we allow ourselves to be honest, to be real, to accept critique from God, we find that we are more broken and messed up than we want to admit. But we also find, through the cross, that Jesus is more loving and accepting and forgiving because He was judged on our behalf for all of those things that we know are wrong, not just in the things that we do, but in the depths of our heart. And when we really begin to open ourselves up, something begins to happen in our lives. And that something that begins to happen is we start to look at other people differently. When we see someone who is hungry and thirsty, instead of being self-righteous and saying, if they would have pulled themselves up by the bootstraps like I did, they wouldn't be hungry. Instead of seeing someone in prison and saying, if they would just be a better person, they could live in a house like me and not in jail. Instead of looking at other people and saying, well, you're naked, you should probably put some clothes on, we start to see people with compassion. We start to look around and go, how close have I been to that situation before? How many missed paychecks am I away from living in that situation? We begin to have compassion. And when we begin to open ourselves up to critique, when we begin to open ourselves up to God's judgment, it also makes us hunger and thirst after His righteousness. Because more and more we see that we don't have it in us. And we want it. We want it in our lives. We want Jesus to change us. We go, Jesus, this is who I am. And I am deserving of your judgment. And I know Jesus took it on my behalf. Will you make me? We are hungry to be made more like Him. And we're hungry to see that happen in the world around us. In our city. In our state. In around the globe. And not only that, but self-examination in the gospel will always, always lead us to compassionate care for those around us. Let's pray.